Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Thursday, December the 29th, 2022, and this show will air on Monday, January the 2nd, 2023, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Just a reminder, the opinions expressed on bringing light into darkness are my own and those of my guests and not necessarily those of Co-op Radio. We welcome an ongoing dialogue with our listening public. At koop.org, all comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 139th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. Again, thanks for joining us. We have a sensational show tonight, as quite frankly we have every Monday night. If your interest is to get as close to the truth as any news and analysis show will allow you, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, where we invite you to join in our weekly pursuit for social justice. A pursuit where we seek to separate fact from fiction, and where we acknowledge uncertainty, where we seek to deconstruct deceit by identifying where unproven allegations are presented as fact through repetition in the absence of evidence, and where uncertainties are approached from a humble, critical thinking perspective, because our interest is in deconstructing deceit and oppression, not enabling it. Tonight, we continue to bring unreported and underreported news regarding the Ukraine-Russia-NATO conflict. Our guest moderator tonight will be undercover Greg Ciotti, who rejoins bringing light into darkness and is a longtime volunteer and news and public affairs radio host and producer. Greg explores questions and dialogue with bringing light into darkness host and producer Pedro Gatos. Enjoy. Good afternoon, alternative news listeners. This is Pedro Gatos. This is Thursday, December the 29th, 2022. And this show will be rebroadcast live from the studios of Co-op Radio on Monday, January the 2nd, 2023. Our first show of the new year. Wanted to kick off the new year by inviting one of our finest NPA broadcasters. That would be Undercover Greg. He's been with Co-op for a decade or more. Has done some outstanding radio on a host of social issues and social justice issues in the community here in Austin. So it's a a great honor, Greg, to have you share this dialogue and and interview opportunity. It's quite a pleasure and a compliment to be asked by you, Pedro, to join you at the year end, uh, to see the, the close of one year of highly productive and and highly informative shows that you put on and bring light into darkness, but also to to see you into the new year and more to come, more productivity, more information, more, as you call it, alternative news. Well, let me turn it over to you, Greg. I know you've had some reflections and 
and some things that you'd like to see us address too. So please let me go ahead and let you lead the way on this important bringing light into darkness show. Well, I know, Pedro, that we've spent a lot of time and I've joined you uh, several times during the year on shows covering what is going on right now in Ukraine. And I have to uh, apologize for not having that much knowledge of the area. I, I go back to my college days where I had a roommate who did not want to be called Russian. He was U- Ukrainian. I remember that distinction. It stuck with me. So I looked into the history and went back to the ninth century when Kiev was founded, Kievan Rus, as it was called, and how uh, encroachment from the East created uh, an environment that uh, focused on joining these uh, various different tribes into what is Moscow and ultimately Russia. Mm -hmm. And this led to what was hoped to be the third Holy Roman Empire with a patriarch. And And the term czar comes from Caesar. It's the Russian word for Caesar. So there's a great deal of history and and to understanding of what motivates Russians, even to this day in history. And Ivan, Ivan the first, his goal was to get the Crimea. And that was one of three tries. Currently, I would say that Russia today under Putin has achieved what Ivan did not and previous attempts to take the Crimea and hold the Crimea. So it is a an important area with a lot of history that I think we don't hear. We don't get a lot of it in the news. We get, as you say, pretty one-sided views of who's bad and who's good. So like I said, it's it's a pleasure to to join you in this and to to learn, to learn from you and to learn from your guests. Very good. Where would you like to start tonight? Well, I think to me, if you're going to start and get your arms around what's going on now, to me, it goes back to the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 and ultimately the accord that was reached in 1994 that established boundaries and I think established a permanent access to Sevastopol by Russia, if I'm not mistaken. And how over time, the weakness or the seeming weakness of what was the former Soviet Union and the impact it had on the people of Russia and the loss they felt and what they are trying to reestablish right now is helpful to understand. And I think you pick it up in, uh, was it 2014 with the elections and and the overthrow of the Kiev government, which turned out to be a conflict in uh, 2014 in the Donbass region. Again, I think one of the points that you make over and over again is that this is not a unmitigated situation. It, I agree that it's heavily mitigated by Western influences in, in effect to keep a weakened Russia weak and not to have it reestablish itself with dominion over other nations. Establish trade, try to make it a trade partner, uh, which Angela Merkel tried for 16 years and is now derided for. So uh, that that's kind of where we are today or how we got here. The constant drumbeat from the West of joining NATO, joining the EU and Europeanizing, which is a word I may have just made up, the Ukraine as, as a, you know, the front boundary with Russia, a, a stopgap to uh, Russian expansion. I know you've spoken with guests who are fighting in the Donbass and have been fighting in the Donbass and their perspective of it. Uh, their, their, if you can explain their position, or as uh, I know you brought this quote up to me about uh, Martin Luther King, who we celebrate in January and all year round, about at least listening to, hearing, and understanding what the other side has to say or how they feel and think. If you can explain the perspective from the other side that we might not be hearing from the news media. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a good place to start. I, I appreciate your history too. I think first, what's practically speaking, what's important, at least what I've learned, is that there has long been Eastern and Western influences and tendencies within the Ukraine state since the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991. And so in the West, you have predominantly in Kiev and in other areas, this acclimation towards the West somewhat. And then in the East, you have the acclimation to Russia. And that's because it's overwhelmingly Russian speaking in the East, in the Donbass area, and these other areas that are now become part of Russia since the invasion. All of those areas are predominantly Russian speaking and, and the Crimea as well. And don't forget the common culture that goes back, like I said, to the ninth century. Absolutely. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is the fact that I think people that have been listening to the show, one of the things I think is important is just the geopolitics of the situation. And so when I think of geopolitics and superpowers of the nations today, like the United States and Russia and China, you know, I think also of the, the sanctity of national security. Some countries don't have the power to enforce their national security, and they become victims of imperial nations, which has been a, a common theme throughout history. But those nations that are the most powerful, they certainly try to make arguments to explain their foreign policy with the preeminence of national security. And so if a country's national security is threatened, then as a superpower, you have means and methods to seek its resolution. And here in our part of the world, in the Western Hemisphere, if you will, we've talked about this too, because you acclimate towards history, and I think it's really important. But if you go back and you look at the original conquering of, of the New World, of the Western Hemisphere, first by Spain and Portugal, and then later they're replaced by France and the Netherlands and the UK. In fact, by the late 1800s and early 1900s, the British Empire, their colonies spanned the whole globe. That was a famous expression, the sun never set on the British Empire. It was always daytime somewhere in the empire of the UK. This is by the early 20th century. By 1913, the British Empire held sway over over 400 million people. That was over 23% of the world's population. And when we talk about Dr. King and we talk about how he made his speech in 67, right, that the United States was the greatest purveyor of violence, he was not aware at that time that in a matter of 50 years, we would have some 700 military bases throughout the whole world. So it seems pretty hypocritical to me, a constant canard that Russia is the aggressor, yet it is the United States, our country, where the sun never sets on our military base throughout the world. We have become that imperial power, supplanting those imperial powers before us. And no other country has promoted more foreign intervention into the sovereignty of other nations than the United States since World War II. I think Dr. King would agree. It's something to think about. And I think that's really important for people to see that you have one juggernaut colonial power after the other, replacing one after the other. And, and it started, as we said, with uh, Spain and Portugal, then France and the UK and the Netherlands, and then the United States in 1823 with the Monroe Doctrine. Even though we were not strong enough to make the actual military uh, back it up the way we wanted to, we did make the claim that this is our hemisphere now, and the colonies and the world in the Western Hemisphere is ours. And of course, that's what it's been. So I think it's really important. I bring that up because that's a national security issue in a sense, but not just national security. It's what's fueled our economic dominance in the world is, is the overwhelming exploitation of these lesser countries militarily wise throughout the South that eventually got replaced by these other colonizers. They gained their independence, but the independence was sold out by neo-colonialist leaders, those people that really 
benefited from a very close relationship with Western capital. They make their own money as indigenous leaders in the area and their people pay the price and such. So if you go over to the Ukraine deal, it's striking to me that no one considers that Ukraine is not 800, 600, 700 miles from the border of Russia. It is on the border. And there's countries, talk about Poland and Hungary, that with the NATO expansion, were beginning to have missile sites ostensibly for defensive missiles. But no one will deny, this is what I've learned, that these defensive missile systems can be rapidly changed into offensive Tomahawk missile systems. And they're right on the border of, of Russia. Yeah, and, and don't, so, forget, yeah. don't forget Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. So well, exactly. Well, all of these common borders. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important because you mentioned Estonia in 2020, just a couple of years before the invasion, NATO conducted a live fire training exercise inside Estonia. And that exercise took place some 70 miles from the Russia border and was using tactical missiles with ranges up to 185 miles. And these weapons can strike Russian territory with minimal warning. In 2021, again, in Estonia, NATO fired some 24 rockets to simulate an attack on air defense targets inside Russia. And again, these claims that these are defensive, obviously Russia knew that they could be offensive uh, as well. There's an, an important little book that covers a lot of these things that we never hear about in our media. And it's by Benjamin uh, Abelo called How the West Brought War to the Ukraine. I, I should add that Jack Matlock, he was on Bringing Light into Darkness a, a number of years ago. He was the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union from 1987 to 1991. And he too is very questionable of U.S. foreign policy and says a brilliant, remarkably concise explanation of the danger that U.S. and NATO military involvement in Ukraine has created uh, is encompassed in this book. The point here is that there are so many well-informed former diplomats and former intelligence officers and former military people that are part of the same counter-narrative, yet we hear none of that on our mainstream news. But NATO was carrying out, according to this author and other sources, and in an article that was published in the Journal of Foreign Policy in December of 2021, the Russian ambassador pointed out that the United States that NATO was carrying out roughly 40 large training exercises annually near Russia. So what the American public, I don't think, really appreciates is that it was not just the expansion thousand miles east after James Baker had promised that there would not be such an expansion if the Russia relented and the wall went down in Germany, et cetera, and such. But the missile sites are there, the, and, and it's the interoperability. Ukraine is not a NATO nation. But they have signed, the U.S. and Kiev, they signed two agreements with the United States. One was the U.S.-Ukraine Strategic Defense Framework. That was in August of 2021. This is just months before the invasion, right? Less than a year before the invasion. And then in, in November of 21, they also signed the U.S.-Ukrainian Charter on Strategic Partnership. So what you basically had was, you're not a NATO nation, Ukraine, but you're, you might as well be, because we have these... <laughs> agreements and we're, we're bringing in arms and we're bringing in training. And just to finish this comment up, we talk about the importance of 2014, but subsequent to 2014, Joe Biden visited the Ukraine some half a dozen times as vice president. And before 2014, 2013, Newland, the assistant secretary of state, was admitting that we were already putting over $5 billion into the Ukraine. 
in order to, to get them to, like we do with all of our historical investments in other nations, we try to get them to come aboard and become allied with Western capital. And that always means, let me just make one other quick point, Greg, because this is essential to understanding geopolitics and why bringing light into darkness does what it does is because we've learned that wherever we are invested foreign policy-wise, and we've done this in innumerable situations, we've explained it, whether it's Syria, whether it's Libya in 2011, Iraq, back in the early 2000s, whether it's in Honduras in 2009, the coup there, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in Yemen, every one of these countries where we are involved and our foreign policy interests succeed. If our government that we have the interest of coming to power comes to power, the majority interests of that country, the majority populations, their quality of life goes down significantly very, very significantly. And this impoverishment that these majority populations suffer is just another form of what Dr. King called or includes in his words that we are the greatest purveyor of violence. Poverty is violent. Violence against humanity, violence against life expectancy, violence against quality of life. And we don't ever see this. We don't ever analyze our foreign policy in this way. We just hear this one-sided narrative that seeks to convince the American public that we are bringing democracy, that we're bringing freedom and liberty to these nations through humanitarian interventions, when in reality it is the opposite, which is clearly the case if we honestly look at Iraq and Libya and Honduras and how these majority populations fared before and after U.S. intervention. If democracy is empowering people and giving them a brighter future, we do the opposite. And, and that can be shown with absolute certainty and in measurable ways. And that's what we try to do on the show, try to stay away from the politics and the emotions of it and just roll out these very disconcerting outcomes that we see in these countries. Yeah, you bring up uh, several things to my mind. Obviously, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, which was promulgated by our placing uh, radar and listening devices and missile systems in eastern Iran but also the two prongs of our approach to foreign policy. One is commercial, financial, capital, basically. And the other is through common weapon systems, communications, and tactics. In other words, equipment to fight. And with the, the split in the Ukraine between joining EU, well, that's financial. That's a financial link. They're linked financially and ultimately culturally then to the Europe with NATO what you saw in the NATO countries throughout Europe is a common use of uh, weapon systems, communications equipment, and also command tactics so, so that they fight as they can fight as a unit. And as you point out, they train in these Eastern European countries consistently and constantly so that they're prepared for command control and uh, communications. And that's the aggression that you don't see. And, and, and yeah, I, I would suggest that that is a great deal more than saber rattling. That well, is and Greg, if I can just add, I mean, when we talk about the 700 U.S. military bases outside of the United States, but we're never told that we are the aggressive nation, except by Martin Luther King when he said we're the greatest purveyor of violence. But in our day-to-day -day media coverage, it's always the Russians' demonization. It's the, it's the generating Russians' hate. It, it, it is really... I'm embarrassed as an American that we promote such absolute hate. I mean, whether it's people like James Clapper talking about Russians as having some kind of genetic propensity to be deceitful and such, when in fact, 
if you look at the history of these agreements, whether it's the Minsk agreement, whether it's the promises that NATO is not going to expand eastward, what you see very clearly and what Putin is now speaking to is that he cannot trust the West, that they are not honest brokers when it comes to their word. I mean, Poroshenko even admitted that they entered the Minsk agreement. Not with diplomatic integrity, but in bad faith. Because they were getting their butts kicked and they wanted to, Ukraine that is, to have time to build up their army and such. And then just recently, I, I believe you know, that uh, Merkel said the same thing from her position, that there was never any indication that they were honest brokers in the diplomatic engagement with Russia. So when you look at Russia and they are the aggressor nation, according to the dominant narrative, which despite being unsupported by the facts, resonates throughout the majority population of the United States psyche, as we are acculturated to hate Russia and everything Russian, and that at their core, they are an aggressor nation. Yet they don't have but maybe one or two military bases outside of the former Soviet Union. Okay, and we have 700. And we went into Libya, we went into Syria, we went into Yemen, or at least we supported Saudi Arabia's massacres of hundreds of thousands of Yemenis and on and on and on. And you look at Iraq, where additional millions died. That's not Russia, that's us. But compared to Russia, we have a completely clean bill of promoting democracy, and these are humanitarian interventions and, you know, all of this language. Let me just digress one minute, because I think it's really important that people understand, Greg, the media slant and central role in creating this informational disconnect between what goes on in the world and how we interpret it. It's not just saying it's mainstream media and it's a media slant, but there was a really important piece by this woman. I think it's a woman, Kyra Rao Pula, back in 2021. And, and she wrote about the dangers of the concentration of media ownership. And let me just take a minute to go over this. It's really shocking that just six media conglomerates at that time back in 2021 control U.S. media. As she says, at the present time, a shocking 90% of the U.S. media, 90% of what you're going to hear and rolls in front of your TV sets and into your brain is controlled by just six media conglomerates. The concentration of media ownership reduces the diversity of viewpoints. It creates a potential conflict of interest, the risk of bias. It creates a potential for suppression of information and is at odds with the economic or political interests of the parent corporation. I would say not the parent corporation, but the parent geopolitical powers of the day, which is this international power structure of the West that's responsible so much for this history of colonial and neocolonialization. Which has created the indefensible levels of wealth inequality between the haves and the have-nots in the world today. These six corporations that are the direct gateways to 90% of the information that is made available to us or not made available to us. And so she names them. She says, when you think about these new outlets, she says, think about cable news. And we have all these diversified and independent news sources from CNN to Fox to MSNBC to Breitbart. But she says, you know, the variety of ownership has been condensed more and more over the years. That in, in 1983, the U.S. media was controlled by 50 companies. And there were nine companies ruling it in the 1990s. And by 2020, the number shrank to six. AT&T, which had bought Time Warner and Columbia Broadcasting System, was the second one, known as CBS, Comcast, Disney, News Corp, and Viacom. This means that a huge amount of media companies are connected. And what she also went on to say 
that several billionaires control huge sections of the media, and many of them are on the same boards. So you have not just only a handful of corporations, but people that sit on the boards are many of the same people on all the boards. And so therefore, when you have situation that we, we've been talking about a lot on the show, the wealth inequality in this world that results that we have the highest wealth inequality of any organization of economic developed nations out of the 38 OECD nations and such, you have an increasingly greater wealth inequality, even under the Obama administrations, the top 1% gained their wealth share over the rest of the economy. That in those eight years from 2009, he was elected and he took office, of course, on 120 of 2009 and up to 120 of 2017. Under the Obama administration, the 1% saw their wealth increase from 26.9% of the total pie to 30.9%. I mean, that's a huge jump, really, more than 10%. In fact, do the math, it's 14.8%. And I bring that up because he's such a liberal and good president relative to our other presidents when you think about the working class, right? Well, wrong. And that's really, I think, why Trump eventually won, not so much the negatives on Hillary Clinton, but that the Democratic Party was not serving the interests of the majority population in this country. And people were picking up on it. But anyhow, I'm getting kind of off track here. But if we're going to ameliorate suffering throughout our country and the world, it begins with the understanding that the system is broken and that even with the most liberal president in recent memory, wealth inequality expanded. It did not constrict. And more and more people are living in economic uncertain terms, creating great stress for them. But Greg, we need to take a brief pause for the cause. I want to remind listeners that this is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. And this is your host, Pedro Gatos, with our moderator, Greg Ciotti. We'll be back in a flash. Don't touch that dial. 